Heavenly Father, uh, help us now to take our minds off earthly things and to set our minds on the things above. By your Spirit, help me to preach your word faithfully. May your gospel bear fruit among us, that we may live out our new identity that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what in this world has captured your gaze? Uh, what in this world has your attention? What are you focused on? Uh, last week, we just had our church camp at uh, Cross and Crown, and as part of the camp program, there was a workshop on the gospel and idolatry. Uh, the goal of the workshop was to help us see that very often our hearts are divided. Uh, although we put, may put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, very often there are other things that are pulling us in other directions uh, as well. Uh, other things that we think will make us happy, will make us feel uh, fulfilled and give us purpose. Things that will make us feel worthy or make life feel worthwhile. Uh, for many people, of course, maybe their idol is their work. Uh, most of their time, attention, thoughts is spent uh, at work and pleasing the boss and chasing the promotion and all those things. Uh, perhaps others, the focus is more at the home, uh, raising perfect children, if that is possible, or having the perfect marriage, if that is possible. Maybe for some of us, looking for the perfect spouse so we can have those things. Uh, others of us, perhaps, we idolize money, uh, experiences, comfort, holidays, security. There's a lot of things that may capture our attention. Uh, but however it happens, uh, very often our hearts is taken away from Jesus and the things of his kingdom uh, so that we give ourselves to the things of this world. And although we may call ourselves Christians, sometimes our lives are not all that different from all the people around us. Our values, our priorities, maybe our struggles with various sins are much like they are. Our focus is misplaced. And the result is that our lives are not transformed as they ought to be. Uh, but the goal of uh, this book, Colossians, Paul's goal, my goal for us this morning, is that we would return our gaze, return our focus to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be captivated again by the Lord Jesus just like the Apostle Paul was. Uh, you may remember that wonderful passage, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23, and that glorious, exalted picture of the Lord Jesus we meet there. He is the supreme Lord of creation, the one who made everything by his power. He is the risen Lord of the church, who's going to rule the new creation forever. He's the divine agent of reconciliation, who reconciles everything to himself as he dies on the cross. Uh, and Paul has told us in chapter 1, verse 28, what his goal is. Uh, his goal in life is to proclaim Jesus to everyone, that he might present everyone mature in Jesus. And he strives for this goal with all his energy, all his strength that God gives him. In short, Jesus and Jesus, Jesus Christ and his cross was what Paul lived for, what he breathed for, what captured his attention what drove his life, and it is what he wants us, his readers, to be like as well. And so in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, they're the central verses of this letter, he urges us to keep our focus on Jesus. It says there, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in 
thanksgiving. That is, Paul wants us to live our lives completely and utterly focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to be ever digging down deeper roots into who he is and what he's done for us so that we might grow up uh, as he intends, strong and mature in the Christian life. And, and Paul notes that it is the gospel and the gospel alone that can bring this kind of transformation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 2, we also find Paul warning of these false teachers who have crept into Colossae uh, to delude them. Uh, they're telling them that actually Jesus is not enough. They're telling them that they need to shift their focus away from Jesus, telling them that if they really want to be mature and blessed in the Christian life, then they need something else. They need a life of legalistic religious rules to follow. They need a life of various spiritual experiences to follow. These false teachers were offering a different form of Christianity that would supposedly bring them more fullness, more joy, more meaning, and so on. But all of these things apart from the Lord Jesus. And chapter 2 ends by warning us that despite all appearances, how wonderful all these rules and experiences seem to be, they are, in fact, useless. They will not grow you in the Christian life. And so verse 23, these things have indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, you can't grow yourself in the Christian life by your own mere efforts or by various experiences. As we come now to chapter 3, we find that the engine room for Christian growth, well, it comes from a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ and Christ alone that can transform us from the inside out to be the people God wants us to be. Well, let's uh, begin, jump in, and the first point this morning, the gospel brings us a new perspective on life, a new perspective, a heavenly perspective on life. Verse 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. In glory. See what Paul is saying here. He's saying that transformation in the Christian life, it begins with remembering what has happened to us in the gospel. We're told here that we have died with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. We are seated in heaven with Christ. And one day when he returns, we will appear with him uh, in glory uh, as well. Now, of course, in one sense right now, we all know we're sitting here on these seats. They're more comfortable than the average pew you find in uh, many churches. Uh, but it's not heaven yet, is it? Uh, we're, we're still on earth here, uh, uh, physically speaking. But he's saying spiritually speaking, you are seated with Jesus uh, in heaven. Now, he's already spoken of this idea of being spiritually united with Christ back in chapter 2. Uh, he says there, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. You who were dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it 
to the cross. In short, on the cross, Jesus died for our sins. Uh, God has a record of all the things that we have ever said, done, or thought that are wrong. He knows all the times that we lost our temper. He knows all the times that we have been selfish and proud, uh, all the times we've failed to love him and trust him. Uh, God has blessed me with a, a memory that's not all that good to remember all those sins that I've committed, but God has them all written down, you see. And we're told here, because of our sins, we are spiritually dead. That means we're, we're alienated from God. That means we are his enemies deserving his judgment. But here we're told, on the cross, Jesus took that punishment for us. He took that, that record of debt, that book with all our sins written in it, and he tore it up and he threw it into the fire and it was, it's gone and burned up forever. And not only that, he rose again to give us new life into his kingdom. He's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son. The point is this, just as Jesus died and rose again, so we were spiritually dead in our sins, but now we are raised to new life in Jesus so that our old life of sin is now dead. It was crucified with Jesus on the cross. It is over and finished with. And we now have a new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what that means is that the gospel is now the key to Christian transformation. It's not about having a set of, of rules. Have a quiet time. Make sure you, you invite three people to life explore. Make sure you pray at least six hours a day or whatever the rules are to make you a spiritual Christian. It's not about having various spiritual experiences, prophecies and visions or whatever it is. That's not going to grow you. It is the gospel. You died with Jesus. Your old life is over. You have a new life with Christ. And so what that means is that our whole outlook on life is now different from the unbeliever around us. We're no longer focused on all those earthly things, the success and the careers and having the perfect family and having approval from others and, and all those things that we used to chase after. Now every thought, every decision, every action, is shaped by our new focus, which is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules right now in heaven. This is the new perspective we are to have on life, not simply focusing on the things of the here and now, on the sins of the flesh, but living in the light of eternity. And as this uh, passage goes on, we see that this, this new perspective, this heavenly perspective, this new way of thinking, it leads to a whole transformed life. The second point, we are to put off the earthly life. We are to put off the earthly life. Look at verse 5. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Note that word, therefore. It's very important, isn't it? It takes us back to verses 1 to 4 just now. We've already seen that we've died with Christ. We've already turned our sights from the earthly things to the heavenly things. And that perspective now is to lead to action. We are to actively put to death that old life of sin. That is, we, we, we don't play around with the old life as if it was harmless uh, we don't half-heartedly pretend to live the, uh, the Christian life or half-heartedly pretend we're resisting against sin, but actually we're not really. We are intentionally and radically putting to death that entire old way of life 
we used to live. Uh, it's a bit like when a chicken loses its head, right? I'm told that for a time, if you cut off a chicken's head, uh, it will run around, I guess, a bit like a headless chicken. Yes. I couldn't resist. Uh, and so it needs to be restrained, right? It needs to be controlled so it doesn't run around. It's the same with our earthly nature, you see. Our old light of sin is dead, right? It has, it's lost its head, crucified at the cross. But even so, if we allow it, sin will keep running around in our lives like a headless chicken unless we restrain it, unless we put it to death. And we're told here the first thing we must put to death is immorality and greed. Again, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Sexual immorality here means any kind of wrong sex outside of marriage. It could be fornication, uh, which is sex with someone that you're not yet married to. It could be idol- uh, adultery, which is sex with someone who is not your, your spouse or someone else's spouse. Uh, it could be homosexuality, which is uh, same uh, sex with the same sex, uh, etc. Sexual immorality. We are to put these things to death. We're told they are earthly. But it's not just the wrong acts of sex we are to put to death. We're told it's also impure thoughts, it's passions, it's evil desires. That is, we are to put to death the lustful thoughts, the self-pleasure, the pornography, and all those things as well. And he ends this list with covetousness, uh, wanting something that is not yours. It could be someone else's body, but it could also be someone's possessions, someone's looks, someone's car, someone's job, someone's family, someone's children, whatever it may be, uh, we are to put to death greed. Are you here this morning someone who is obsessed with money? Are you someone who is constantly thinking about how to get more, a better house? Are you a person who needs to live in a luxury house, or at least a better one than now? You can always tell if greed is a problem in your life if you ask the question, how much money do I need? And the answer is more. Yeah. Uh, and you can be greedy when you're poor. You can be greedy when you're rich. And you can tell that a greedy person is greedy because they will seek after that more, uh, no matter what cost it has to those around them, their family, their walk with Christ, uh, etc. The career, the lifestyle, etc. It becomes the priority over Jesus. Paul reminds us here, covetousness is Idolatry. Uh, Idolatry is not just bowing down to statues, that is. When anything else replaces God as the one that we look to for happiness, fulfillment, uh, purpose, satisfaction, pleasure, etc. Anything that we chase after or we look for more than God, well, that can be an idol. Sex can become an idol. Money can become an idol. And Paul tells us here it's serious business. Because he wants us where an idolatrous life leads us. Look at verse 6. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, I think this is probably rather unpopular in our world right now, isn't it? If you turn on Netflix, uh, Apple TV, or whatever you watch, almost any movie, almost any TV series, you will find sexual immorality. You will find uh, sex scenes, you will find uh, various lusts, you'll find LGBT, uh, etc. And Paul tells us here, that's not what we were made for. That's 
earthly, that's ugly, it's impure. And here we're warned, if we let that kind of uh, thinking and action go unchecked, it will have disastrous consequences for us. Those who don't turn from idolatry and sin, they will face God's wrath in the end. And so as Christians, we need to fight to put these things to death in our lives. Now, the statistics say that most of us here today, regardless of age or gender, are probably struggling with uh, some form of pornography. It's not just a struggle for single people. It's a struggle for married people too. Uh, It's not just a struggle for people who are not in ministry. It's a struggle for people who are in ministry too. Left alone, it will grow. It will affect our thoughts. It will affect the way that we relate to one another, uh, especially the other gender. And uh, if we let it go unchecked, it will lead us to cross boundaries one day that we should never have crossed. It leads to affairs. It leads to fornication and so on and so forth. Paul tells us that's the old life. That's finished. That's crucified with Jesus on the cross. And it needs to be put to death. Not to pretend to fight it, but not really want to fight it. We are to execute it. We are to murder it. We are to kill it. We are to do what needs to be done. We are to confess to a friend. We are to ask for prayers. We are to have some kind of accountability software. Uh, The one I've been using is Covenant Eyes. I've been using it for about 15 years or more now. The first month is free. You can install it today, straight after the service. If we've been saved by Christ, that old life is over. We have a new life to live. But it's not just sexual sins and greed he has in mind here. Of course, it's also anger and lies as well. Verses 7 and 8. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So it says hurtful, hateful speech is no longer to belong in our life. We're to to put it off. Now, he's using a clothing metaphor here. Uh, If your clothes are dirty, then you're meant to take them off, put them in the laundry, and go and get some clean ones. Uh, If you come to church this morning and you're wearing, you know, some uh, filthy stained uh, clothes, then you're probably going to get a few looks, and someone might not sit next to you. I, I don't know. That's what we must do with the anger in our hearts and in our tongues. We need to, to take it off, to, to, to put it away. You know, when we're driving, the rage that comes when someone blocks your path or takes your spot, the gossip when someone hurts us, the frustration with our children. It's so easy to lose your temper with the children, isn't it? The swearing, uh, perhaps dirty jokes, or the impatience when you have to wait in line, maybe when you're visiting immigration. Any kind of hurtful thoughts or words or actions, it all needs to go. It's the old life. It has no place in our lives anymore. It's been crucified at the cross. If, If we have the heavenly perspective, if we're focused on the Lord Jesus, then all those earthly sins, they need to go. I think we often forget the power of words. You know the saying, of course, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not very wise, that saying, is it? It's not true at all. 
Uh, just a few rash words yelled in anger. Someone may remember that for decades. It can take a long time to heal. A few malicious words can destroy a friendship entirely. But it's not just sexual immorality. It's not just anger and hurtful words. Verse 9 adds lies to the list too. It says, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. I think we all know what it's like to be lied to, don't we? Especially when someone close lies to us. But we do it all the time, don't we? We excuse it. It's just a small lie. Uh, the ends justifies the means. I had a good purpose in it anyway. But you see, if we're, we're united in Christ, if we're spiritually seated with Jesus in heaven, we can't live that lying life anymore. We need to set our minds on things above and put lying to death. All these things we're told in verse 9 belong to the old man. We are to put off the old man. Some of us who are a bit uh, more aged here might be uh, very happy to know that you have put off the old man and uh, the hair will grow back again. But that's not what he's talking about. He says uh, the, the old man here he's talking about is the old humanity that is in Adam, the old humanity corrupted by sin. Christ has paid the price. He's rescued us from Adam. He's rescued us from that old life. He's made us part of a whole new humanity in Jesus. And so we are to put off the old life. Instead, uh, point three, we are to put on the new heavenly life. We are to put on the new heavenly life. So verse 10 tells us if we're part of Christ, then we are now part of this whole new uh, humanity that uh, Jesus has made together being transformed into the image of God. Verse 10 says, we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Remember right back at the beginning, human beings, we are made in the image of God. We are meant to be like God, including in our character. And of course, Adam and Eve fell into sin, and ever since, all of us fall into sins. We have this corrupt sinful nature that leads to all the immorality, anger, and lies, and so on. But Jesus saved us, and now we're told he's transforming us, that we may be who God created us to be, people remade into the image of God, people who are like God. And Paul tells us that in this new humanity, remade into the image of God, we're no longer divided by race or social class or these things. Verse 11 says, Here then there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. Christ is all and in all. So in this new humanity, which is the church, the only thing that matters is Christ. And Christ is in all who trust in Jesus, no matter their race, no matter their gender, no matter their age or their social class. I find it so sad when uh, various divisions come into the church in this way, Uh, when we relate to a maid or foreign worker as if they're lesser, as if we treat one race better than another when we come into the church. Whatever, we, whatever divisions there are outside the church, when we come into here, we are fundamentally equal, aren't we? We are one. It's a beautiful thing about this church, Penang International Church. It's in the name, isn't it? Everyone is welcome. It doesn't matter what country you're from. 
we can all gather together here in this place as one new humanity, equals in the Lord Jesus. And yet, I, I suspect that even in a church like Penang International Church, there, there can still be tribalism, I guess. I guess it's easy for the Americans to be in one corner uh, and the Koreans uh, to be off in the other corner. Uh, and the Chinese uh, at, at another corner and so on, and we don't, uh, we don't mix with each other, or we don't treat each other as if we are equals, as brothers and sisters. But in God's new humanity, we are to practice this radical unity. We get rid of the old life, we, get, we put on the new heavenly life, and together we are one. Now, last year I had to get some uh, repairs done on my phone, uh, and I discovered that uh, this great service that some companies like Switch offer, they call it new for old replacement. Has anyone done that before? That is, they, they, they take your old broken phone, uh, you pay them a bit of money, fraction of the retail price, and they give you a brand new phone, exactly the same phone, but a brand new one, new for old replacement. Wonderful thing. That's what is to happen in the Christian life, you see. We need to trade our old earthly life and get a new for old replacement. We are to get rid of all those sins and live out the new identity that we have as God's new humanity. Now, what's that all that going to look like? Let's come down to verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Again, we're back to the clothing metaphor, aren't we? Uh, but now it's what you are to put on as you came to church this morning. Uh, I wonder if you put much thought into what you were going to wear here. Uh, I guess the men probably didn't think that much about it. They really just opened the cupboard and put on the first thing that they saw. Maybe the women spend a little longer choosing their outfit for today. I, I don't know. Maybe that's just a stereotype. But it's, it's also true in the Christian life too. Every day when I get up in the morning, I need to think to myself, what am I going to wear? Am I going to put on the old, you know, that old self with all its ugly sins? Or am I going to put on the new self transformed in Christ's likeness? Instead of all those filthy clothes stained with sin, we are now to clothe ourselves with heavenly clothes. We are to put on the virtues of God himself. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Notice again how all this flows out of our new identity in Christ. He's not, just, he's not saying, look, just stop being bad and start being good. Here are some rules to follow in the Christian life. It's not what the passage says, is it? He says, look, look at who you are now. You are God's holy chosen people. You are dearly loved by him. God has set you apart. He's made you part of his own family. And so won't you be like him, like father, like son? If this is what your heavenly father is like, will you be like him too? So it's not self-made religion. It's not the kind of rule keeping that he's condemned in the previous chapter. And it's certainly not asceticism or spiritual experiences. None of those things work. Change in the Christian life comes from reflecting on the gospel, reflecting on who we are now in Jesus and seeking to live that out in our lives. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, 
patience. If all the things in the first part of the passage destroy human relationships, these are all the things that build and preserve human relationships. Compassion. Compassion is relating to each other in, in, with empathy, uh, moving towards the suffering instead of running away from them, uh, maybe like caring for an awkward or difficult member in your small group maybe, or supporting the one who has lost a loved one. Like kindness, that's thinking how to act with a full heart towards those around us, kind words and actions. Humility, uh, not seeking to impress other people, but seeking to fade into the background. Uh, meekness, not being blatant, not being harsh. Uh, patience, allowing time for growth and change. Is that what we are like this morning? Of course, uh, virtues like this, they don't just emerge immediately, are they? It's not that, you know, I, I say the sinner's prayer and then I wake up the next morning and <laughs> I'm, a, I'm suddenly a different person, totally different. It doesn't work like that, does it? No, it's day by day as I reflect again and again on what Jesus has done for me, what God is like towards me in the gospel. Gradually, daily, God changes me bit by bit to be more like him, compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient. I don't know if you noticed here, but Paul's emphasis is not so much on the individual, but on the community. Uh, it says God's people together that we are to clothe ourselves with all these virtues so that together we may be that one new humanity united in Jesus. Look how he continues in verse 13. He says, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. See how much we are to strive to be one in the Lord Jesus. It's no longer about cutting off people who hurt us or about seeking to get revenge. Our hearts are changed. They're melted by the gospel so that now we're willing to overlook other people's mistakes. Uh, we, uh, uh, Neil will be happy about that this morning, I guess, isn't it? We don't get angry over every minor thing that happens. We're generous to extend forgiveness to others. And notice here, forgiveness is not optional for the Christian. He says, we must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. We must forgive even when it's not deserved even when it's something that is very difficult. I, I actually think that this is one of the most difficult verses in the Christian life to live out. I find it so hard to obey this verse. But that's what God is like towards us, isn't he? God has forgiven us when we were his enemies. And if we're people remade in his image, then we have to be people of grace and forgiveness. Verse 14, he continues, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Of course, love is God's most defining characteristic. God is love and he's poured out his love on us in the Lord Jesus. And so as he has poured out his love onto us, so we are to pour out love on one another, where we put the needs of others above our own, sacrificially, humbly. It's so beautiful when it happens. As a pastor, I often see this in my own church, people talking to those who are left out, 
uh, people who uh, practice hard to prepare for the service uh, so that they can serve others, people who go and uh, visit and, and provide meals for those who are sick, uh, people who help those who are in trouble, and a million other things as, uh, as well. It's a beautiful thing when we reflect God's love to one another. And verse 15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. That is, we're not just saved as individuals, but as we display all these heavenly characteristics, they bond us together as one. They bring us peace. If we've been united with Jesus in his family, then in everything that we do, we strive to be at peace with one another. So that what characterizes us is not petty disputes or church politics, but genuine peace, genuine love. And he finishes this passage with thankfulness in verse 15. He says, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing you in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see what he's saying? Thankfulness is to be the refrain of the Christian life. Not a life of grumbling, not a life of complaining, but thankfulness. Thankfulness for what God has done in and among us. Uh, Indeed, not just thankfulness, but songs of praise as we reflect on what God has done for us. And not just songs of praise, but a whole life, we're told, that everything that we do is to be an act of thanksgiving to the God who has showed us such grace. You notice again here, it is the gospel, it is the gospel alone that brings transformation in the Christian life. It is the gospel alone that brings unity among God's new humanity, the church, as we reflect on what Jesus has done and in thankfulness respond and live it out with one another. Well, what has captured your gaze? What are you focused on? To what do you give your attention? Uh, When you get married, everything changes. Before you walk into the church, you're a single person and a close, intimate uh, relationship with your girlfriend or boyfriend is inappropriate and you definitely shouldn't stay overnight in his house and uh, you shouldn't call his parents uh, Baba Mama or whatever it is in your language. You're single. You are to live a single life. But when you say those vows and you come out of the church, you're married. Everything is different. You have a a whole new identity. You have committed your life to that person. And so everything in your life now needs to change. You have the wedding ring on your finger. You should be calling your in-laws mama and baba. I made that mistake in my uh, wedding speech to not do that. And I was promptly corrected. You should live under the same roof with your spouse. And you should be intimate with each other. The single life is over. You've got a new life to live a married life. That is the Christian life too, isn't it? Before we trust in Christ, we live one way, the old earthly life. But now when we become Christians, everything changes. That life is gone. We have a new life, a new identity. We are to be those God has made us to be 
in the image of God. And so let us not get distracted and go back to that old way of life. But with every thought, every decision, every action, keep our focus on the risen Lord Jesus who reigns there forever. Brothers and sisters, let's not keep our eyes on earthly things. Let us not set our hope on this world as if this is all that matters. God has planned so much more. He has seated us in heaven, and he wants us to live heavenly lives, even now. And it all begins with the gospel, recognizing what Jesus has done for us, and in thankfulness, seeking to live out that new life. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you have rescued us from that old destructive life. We thank you that you tore up that record of sins when Jesus died on the cross. We thank you that we are now seated in heaven with Jesus and headed for glory. Lord, we pray that you would help us indeed to set our minds on the things above. Help us, Lord, as we reflect on the gospel to put to death those lingering sins. Help us to clothe ourselves with those pure clothes of your character. And Lord, we ask that as we do this, that you might indeed bond us together as one, that we might live in peace with one another as your new humanity. We pray this all for your glory. In Jesus' name.